Um, I think that's a good way of looking at the Bible. That way I'm not just picking out my favorite text and dealing with the subjects that I like to deal with. Um, Otherwise, we would probably have two or three um, subjects that we talked about. But this forces us to encounter the entire Bible. It it forces us to encounter passages of text that are difficult, passages that um, make us uncomfortable. I don't think this one's going to make us uncomfortable today, but that's what we do. And we've been re- so by way of review, I don't know why I went that direction. But anyways, the death of Jesus, um, we, we talked about the crucifixion of Christ. We, last week, we talked about the resurrection. And so you would think that our text today would be one of great joy and one of great uh, or at least would begin with great joy and celebration. But actually, um, the death of Jesus brought despair and confusion to his disciples because they were not expecting that. Even though he told them over and over again, they were not expecting death. They had no room in their theology for a Messiah who dies. And then they, they had this other kind of strange thing because on that, the death happened on Friday and on Sunday they uh, Some of their company, the women went to the tomb and they didn't find the body of Christ there. And so the ladies come back and say, well, we don't know what happened, but, you know, we had a vision of an angel and he said that he's risen. And they all said, yeah, whatever. And so now we that's kind of. Where we have been there, there there's confusion, there's despair, there's a lack of hope, there is an uncertainty. What in the world is going on? And so that's where we've been. Let me give you a little bit of preview of where I hope to go. What I want to do is I want to try to, to hit three big themes today. So the three big things. First one is God's ways are not our ways. You, you should note that this story in Luke, Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35, it's unique to Luke. It's not found in the other three Gospels. It's unique to him. It is, Luke is a master storyteller. And this is a beautiful, beautiful uh, story. It's one that's filled with drama. It's filled with emotion. It's filled with anticipation. It's filled with sadness. It's filled with irony. Think about the irony that that, that the people are, the two people that are kind of the main characters in in the account, they're they're traveling and they're lamenting, um, saying, well, you know, nobody's been able to see Jesus. And they're actually talking to him. Um, And he's right there, a little bit of irony, and we'll unpack that in a bit. But my three big themes, really, that God's ways are are not our ways, that that his ways are are, are beyond ours. That doesn't mean we can't understand everything, but sometimes God has purposes that we don't immediately see because he is fitting us for something else. He is preparing or uh, planning something that is way beyond your and my expectations. So that's the first thing I'm going to look at, that God's ways, not our ways, and that that's actually a good thing. Um, the, the second issue I, I hope to address today is the what is the primary focus of the scriptures? What is the Bible's main focus? And this is going to become, I think, important for us as we deal in a, as we live in a very narcissistic world. That um, I'm going to give this away and burst your bubble right at the beginning, and that is, it's not about you. So uh, that's the first thing. And then finally, the goal of redemptive history. The Bible does speak. The Bible is a historical book. Um, It does speak of history. It's a very narrow history. All right. It speaks of God's redemptive history, how God has brought about redemption. And but it is a historical book. We can look at the various um, 
events and people and places, and we can find those things actually occurring in history. The empty tomb is actually probably the best recorded um, historical event, um, one of the best recorded historical events that, that we can find. So uh, I want to talk a little bit about the goal of redemptive history. So those are the kind of the three big thing, themes as we go forward. So if you will, uh, follow along as I read in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. It's a rather large section of text today, but I think we need to keep it all together. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and the rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the chosen, the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find, the bo- find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. While he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road and while he opened to us the scriptures? And they arose at that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told what they had happened to them on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And this ends the reading of God's inerrant word. Well, we begin with this meeting of, of Christ and these, these two disciples. And the setting is that they're on this the road uh, to Emmaus. It's Sunday afternoon. Um, remember, they were all in town for the Passover. It was a time pilgrims gathered from all over the world and came into Jerusalem. It was a time of great hustle and time of uh, great activity. And they celebrated uh, the Passover. And then, of course, um, according to the, uh, to the scriptures, they rested on the Sabbath. And so now it's Sunday and they're returning home. And they're returning home to a place, a town called Emmaus. And it's about a seven-mile journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Now, here's the thing. We don't know where Emmaus is. It's really one of the few places that we don't really have a, an account of. So I guess put a pin in Jerusalem and draw a circle seven miles around, and it's somewhere in that area. But these two, these two folks are talking on their way home. I'm assuming Emmaus is their home. 
where they live, and their conversation. I want you to note about all these things. That seems to be a very important phrase to, to Luke. He uses that term often, all these things. And so that's just kind of where we're at that gives us a little bit of a setting. But really, the, the, the story revol- revolves around this appearance of Jesus to them. So they're having this discussion and they are talking with each other about all these things. And while they were talking and discussing together, it's a very uh, um, vivid word, this idea of discussing there. And the way, the way it's used is that it, this was, a, um, it was an emotional discussion. They weren't just talking facts, but it was an emotional discussion. And certainly you can read and see the emotion in this text as Luke is, is, is revealing and, and telling us of this account. It is certainly an emotional account, and they were discussing. Um, uh, and it was an emotional account. Remember, their, their theology had no room for a crucified Messiah. The idea that, that a Messiah who was a great man, a great person, a deliverer, a man of God would be crucified. Remember, there was probably no lower form of death than crucifixion. It labeled a person as the worst of the worst. And so how does a good person end up being crucified? How would God's person end up being crucified? That just doesn't make any sense. Remember, the horror of crucifixion, it was such a as I've said many times, you wouldn't even use the word cross in common conversation. It was such a horrific word. And yet, the guy who we placed all our hope in, the guy who we thought was from God, was crucified. How do we reconcile those things? It's this emotional discussion about these things. And so, their theology had no room for a crucified Messiah. And so, there's this sadness, there's this this despair. And as they're talking about these things, um, Jesus comes and walks alongside them. I, I love this story because it's one of those, those accounts where the reader knows more than the, than the characters in the story, right? So you're reading it and you know it's Jesus, right? The characters in the story have no idea what's going on. You and I are kind of, Luke gives us this bird's eye view. It's kind of like the book of Job, right? As a, as a reader, you know what's going on. You know all of the behind the scenes stuff that's happening, but the guys who are living it, they have no idea of it. So this is kind of one of those ways that Luke um, brings this story to life. We know exactly what's going on, but these two disciples have no idea. And so Jesus comes alongside them and begins to to walk with them. And one of the things that really stood out to me about this was, um, I'm thinking about these two disciples. One of them, we know his name, and his name is Cleopas. We really don't know anything about him. He's not mentioned anywhere else in in scripture, and we don't know the person who's with him. Some people would say it's his wife, and that's a good possibility. Some say it might be his son. We don't know. Um, I, I would argue his son, um, and my main reason for saying that, not because... Luke always exalts women, right? The Gospel of Luke, from the very beginning, women are always... They're the heroes of the story. In pretty much every account that Luke has that has women in it. They're the hero of the story. And the fact that she's not mentioned just makes me think that um, if it was his wife, I would think Luke would make her the hero of the story because that's what he does. Anyways, just throw that out there and you can disagree with me on that. The bottom line, we don't know. But I do find it interesting how Jesus comes alongside these unknowns 
These are, this is not Peter. This is not James. This is not John. This isn't one of the inner circle of disciples. This isn't even one of the 11 disciples. These are just two people. One, we happen to get their name. The other, we don't know. And they're going to some unnamed town. And Jesus condescends and makes sure that these people are okay. I just love the fact how it's not just to the great, just not to the most important, not just to the, the relevant, not just to the, the hip, the cool, the in, whatever, but he goes to the unknown. And I would encourage you to remember that Christ condescends to us. I think about myself. I don't want to make myself the part of the story, but just as a an illustration. I mean, really, in the scheme of things, you know, just who are we? Who are any of us? I think the first song was saying, who are we that we would be called the children of God? Really, think about it. You might, you might say, well, doesn't God have more important things to do and more important people to deal with? And my answer is, no, not really. You're... Your importance to him is really important. But he doesn't go to just the great. I mean, he ended up going to Paul, who was a pretty great man. He went to Nicodemus, who was a pretty um, high-ranking official. But he doesn't just go to the great and the smart and the powerful and the popular. But two folks, one we don't even know their name, going to some unnamed town, on uh, on a Sunday afternoon. Jesus shows up and he's going to give them the greatest Bible study lesson ever. Uh, I don't know, that just kind of stood out to me. And so, and it tells us that their eyes were um, kept from recognizing him and certainly we ask ourselves the question, why? Let's see, why wouldn't Jesus just show up and say, woohoo, look at me. I was dead, now I'm not. To have angels singing and hallelujahs and all. Their eyes were kept from recognizing them. And, and that's what we might call the divine passive. In other words, um, sometimes we do grammar here. And, uh, so this is a passive tense verb. In other words, that. But it's God who's doing the acting upon them. In other words, God blinded their eyes. And we think to ourselves, why? Why would you do that? That doesn't make sense to me. Why would Here they are despairing and suffering and confused. And why would God prolong such a thing like that? And as I said in our introduction, God's ways are not our ways. But why would God prolong their despair and their suffering and their confusion? You would think, I can fix it right now. Ta-da, here I am. And he doesn't. So I guess we could say, well, maybe God's just cruel. Or, maybe a better answer is that there's a better reason and a better time. That is, his gradual revelation will allow them to begin to trust in the objective truth of God's word. In other words, God is not going to appear every time they doubt. Every time they doubt, Jesus is not going to show up and say, stop doubting. Rather, when we doubt, 
Where are we going to have to go? We're going to have to go to the objective truth of God's word to help us in that. Jesus just doesn't show up and appear. He's teaching them to rely upon something that is firm, stable, and established and will be there all the time. So permitting temporary despair is actually going to end up leading them to greater hope, to greater joy, and to greater trust. I'll give you a a couple of, of examples. That oftentimes God allows really, really difficult circumstances and he does not alleviate those difficult circumstances for the purpose of bringing about a greater joy, a greater experience, a greater understanding, a greater foundation at a later date. And certainly the crucifixion is one of those events. I don't think we can think, oh, well, that was, a, that was good. You will note in verse 26 how Jesus said, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer? Luke loves this idea of these things must happen. This is necessary to happen. And as, we, as, we, as we've gone through Luke, we've seen that over and over again. These things must happen. The crucifixion was necessary to happen. It must happen. In other words, God is in charge of history. He is moving it along according to his plan. And the greatest crime in the history of mankind was the crucifixion of Christ. And if the greatest crime in history did not thwart God's plan, actually it fulfilled God's plan. So sometimes God's ways are well, not all the time. God's ways are not our ways. And he will take us through the valley of the shadow of death because there is a, something much more glorious by going through the valley of the shadow of death. There is something much more important. Remember, God is conforming these people, these two people, to, into his image. And when we go through despairing times, difficult times, confusing times, and we think, how come God is not delivering me out of them? Understand a couple things. Number one, God is conforming you to the image of his son. That's his number one priority. Your comfort is not his number one priority. I hate to tell you that, so sorry. Um, no, I'm not sorry, but it's not his number one priority. And to alleviate everything that might be uncomfortable um, is, is, is not his number one priority for us in, in our lives, that he will take us through trials. He will take us through difficulties. But notice, he will take us through them. Just like the psalmist says, and he will, he, you know, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thou art, you know, you're with me. You're with me in that valley. And it's through the valley of the shadow of death. In other words, we come out the other side. So God is using the crime of the crucifixion, their natural despair, to draw the travelers into a greater trust that will result in a greater joy. So if you are in the midst of despair and challenges and trials and confusion, um, I pray that that God walks with you. I know he will walk faithfully with you through those things. I pray that it ends quickly. But even if it doesn't, I want you to understand that God is fitting you for something much more glorious. And he is fitting us for eternal life with him forever and ever. And he is conforming us to the image of his son. So God is using, God does not allow them to see him immediately. Well, they have this conversation. He says, what's the conversation you guys are having with each other as they 
they walk. And, and they stood still looking sad. And one of them named Cleopas, and, and I love this. He said, so Jesus says, what are you talking about? And they look at him. Have you been living under a rock? I mean, they don't know it's Jesus, so you can kind of forgive them. But they're kind of rebuking him. Are you kidding me? Were you not just in the same place that you and that we were just we we're all together in the same town, right? You're telling me that you weren't aware of what all was going on? What do you mean? Are you unaware of these things? You mean like that triumphal entry thing and the cleansing and the teaching in the temple, the trial and the crucifixion. Remember when Jesus was, this guy Jesus was paraded through the streets publicly and everybody was crying out and saying, crucify him, crucify him, and that he was hung out. Everybody knew it. You were there. What is, don't you remember just a couple days ago at noon it turned dark? Like, where were you? And that earthquake thing. Did you miss that? Who? Are you kidding me? You should remember that the crucifixion was a very public event. But these guys, maybe these people, because I don't know, maybe there was one of, maybe it's Cleopas' wife. These, these individuals were amazed that Jesus, what, what happened in Jerusalem? Tell me about it. And then he begins to unpack. Well, there, it's concerning Jesus of Nazareth, the man who was a mighty prophet, who was mighty in deed and word before God and all the people and how our chief priests had delivered him up and condemned him to death. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We believe that he was a prophet. And that's a true statement. It's an incomplete statement, but it's certainly a true statement. And, and that probably would have made sense to them if Jesus was only a prophet because that's what happened to all the prophets. They all got killed. So if he's just a prophet, uh, his death makes sense. But we were hoping he was something else. Not just a prophet like Isaiah or Jeremiah or any of the other prophets. We were thinking he was the prophet that, that Moses talked about in Deuteronomy 18. Deuter- that speaks of one who was to come, who was called a prophet, but he was going to be the Messiah. We were thinking that was the one. We are hoping he was the Messiah. And, and here's the thing. There have been unsubstantiated reports of an empty tomb. The, the women went and they, they said the tomb was empty and they said they saw angels and the angels said the tomb was empty and that, that Christ wasn't dead but, but, but was risen. But they went there but they saw no body. Boy, the irony is thick, isn't it? The evidence that they need for hope is a risen Christ. Then they would have joy. Meanwhile, the risen Christ is the one who's talking with them. So what things are you talking about? Are you, have you been living under a rock? Don't you know anything about this Jesus of Nazareth? Uh, all this stuff happened, and this is what we thought. He was a great man. He did all of these things, and we were thinking he was the one who would deliver Israel and deliver us from our sins like Isaiah. We thought all of these things, and it looks like it's not true, but we're kind of hearing some stories. Maybe it is, but we don't know. We haven't seen him. Some of our company went and saw the tomb, and yeah, they said it was empty too, but they didn't see a body. Either. We don't know what to do, so we're just going home. What else do you do? Time to get back to work. And then Jesus rebukes them. 
O foolish ones and slow of heart. Slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. I think it's interesting that he speaks to them that they are slow of heart and slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. I think that's interesting because he does not say that you, he's not rebuking them for not believing the testimony of the women who went to the tomb, though we saw they should have believed what the women said. But he's saying what you're not believing is you're not believing what the prophets have said. The prophets have spoken about this clearly. Clearly, this has been stated, and you're not believing it. I want to point you back to to those things. And so then it says, he began to, um, was it not necessarily, and he said to them, O foolish one, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures uh, the things concerning himself. And I want to spend some time with this idea of teaching. Now, man, I've spent a lot of time in classrooms. I've gone to a lot of school. And I I say this not not in any any arrogance. I think I've had some of the, the greatest professors of this era. Trade in every year and every professor for these three hours to hear that, what he's, I mean, I trade it all in. This is probably the greatest, I mean, these nobodies get this one-on-one with the risen Lord. It's seven miles to Emmaus. I don't know how far along they were, but if you're walking at a pretty good pace, three miles an hour, it's a little over two hours, two and a half hours, to uh, to get to Emmaus for two and a half, and that's if you're going at a pretty good pace of three miles an hour, maybe a little slower, it'd be a good three-hour trip. Awesome. What a great day that is. So he begins to teach them, and he begins, and I notice, notice this, he begins with Moses and all the prophets. He interpreted to them in all the, in all. Those were all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. I want to make two points. The first point is that Jesus is the theme of scripture. All right. What's he saying? He's saying that all of these things speak of me. And we see that in John 5, 45 and 46. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he, Moses, wrote of me. All right. All of the I want you to understand. If you get one thing today, get this. The scriptures speak of Christ. He is the theme of the scriptures. And I make this point because this truth is necessary because we are surrounded by those who make themselves or ourselves or me the theme of scripture. You are not the theme of scripture, so do not interpret scripture with you as the theme trying to help us to understand how do we read the Bible? How do we understand the Bible? How do we do a good job of interpreting Scripture? Well, one of the first things we can remember is that it's not about you. It is about Christ. 
He is the central theme of Scripture. He says so. It all points to me. When we make ourselves the focal point, we reinterpret God's Word and we do a great disservice. I'm going to give you three examples. Um, we, call this, um, we call this narcissism. All right. Exegesis is when we interpret the scripture, or really any literary, um, any piece of literature, we draw out the meaning. Exegete, we, ex, we exegete it. We draw the meaning out. Eisegesis means we put the meaning in. All right. Narcissus means we put ourselves in it. Like, like narcissistic. All right. We want to avoid both eisegesis and narcissus. Trying to do exegesis, draw the meaning out. But let me give you a couple of. Examples, and I may have even been guilty of some of these, and I hope I'm, I'm not anymore. Uh, the, the story of David and Goliath. Okay, most people know that story. It's probably one of the most popular stories in all of Scripture. And it is popular to hear that you are David, and you can slay your Goliath. Okay, if I ever preach that, come and take me down out of the, sit me down and say, don't ever teach that. That is not the point of the story. I hear it over, David, and he picked up these five stones of faith, and people have even named the five stones, and David and Goliath was this, and he's the sin, and you can overcome your Goliath. That is not the point of the story. You've just put yourself, you've narcissized the text. Stop it. And stop me. Not the point. Here's what we see. God's honor has been declared. He is their true king and whoever, and he is the one who will deliver his people through his chosen servant who, was, who, has, who is victorious by faith and through weakness. David, victory affirms that he is the rightful king. It was a victory through an unnamed shepherd. God's faithfulness through an unarmed, weak shepherd. Hmm. I wonder if that has anything to do with Jesus. Let me think, let me think. It points to a son of David who is our representative and who will also be mocked like David was mocked. And he will deliver through weakness, affirming his, that he is the rightful king, victorious through an unarmed shepherd. That's a much better sermon. That's a much better truth than, oh, just be like David. Have some faith. What if I don't have faith? What if I don't have it? What if I'm just totally on the floor with nothing? Oh, just have faith. I don't got faith. What I need is somebody more powerful than my circumstances and situation. I need a Redeemer King who is able to do that. what I am unable to do. That's the point. I hear so often, you know, Jesus walking on water. And it's like, oh, you just need to have faith and get out of the boat. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is Jesus is walking on water and the psalmist said God walks on the waves. All right? Do you understand? That's a much better picture. Jesus is de- declaring who he is. There is that's, this is why Peter says, depart from me, I'm, I'm an evil man. Jesus is the focal point of Scripture. Another error that we have is we draw a parallel to a biblical person in Matthew chapter 4, 
a temptation of Jesus, uh, Satan says, if you're the son of God, then turn these stones into bread. And then Narcissus will end up saying, well, I'm a son of God. And so therefore, I'm, and they all of a sudden put themselves and make themselves the focal point of the story. This has nothing to do with you being a son of God. It has everything to do with Jesus as the second Adam. Fulfilling what the first Adam failed. The first Adam was in a garden and was tempted by the tempter and he failed and was kicked out of the land and as a result, death came. And the last Adam, Jesus, the son of God, the son of Adam, also faced the tempter. Not in the garden, in a beautiful garden, but in the wilderness and he did what the first Adam failed to do and as a result of that brought life to all. The first Adam brought death, the second Adam brings life. Folks, that's a much better story. It's not just a much better story. It's interpreting the, the events in light of Christ. I see people, we put our name into the story. I listened to, to one individual and talking about Lydia, how she was a seller of purple and that um, she was loved by God. And they said, you're Lydia. Just put your name in place of Lydia. and you're, Don't do that. The story of Lydia in Acts talks, um, don't replace your name with somebody else's. The story of Lydia talks about God's sovereign purposes and salvation. See, it's, it's not about you. It is about Christ. So our first lesson, the first thing, is that Jesus is the theme of Scripture. And I've given you a few examples of, of what we can do and what we ought not to do. The Bible is not a series of moral stories. It is a, it is a redemptive history, and Jesus is at every point of that redemptive history. Let me show you a little bit more because Jesus then says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them all the scriptures concerning himself. I don't know what he said. I was not there. I wish I was. But I would assume that maybe he started or at least highlighted Genesis 3.15 where he cursed the serpent and he said... There will be enmity between your seed and her seed, the seed of the woman, the seed of Eve. And you will bruise him on the heel and he will crush your head. Perhaps he begins here. I'm the seed of the woman. I'm the one who destroys the work of the serpent. And I am the only true covering for sin provided by God by the death of an innocent sacrifice. Do you realize that? That when Adam and Eve sinned, they were, God clothed them with animal skins. That means something died to cover them. Jesus is like, I'm the seed of the woman. I am the true covering. Perhaps he goes forward to Genesis chapter 6, verse, verses chapter 6 through 8, talking about Noah and the ark. And I am the ark. I'm the one that if you are in me, I will guide you safely through the water of God's wrath. This is what Peter brings up in First Peter. He talks about the ark of Jesus being the one who delivers us through the waters of God's wrath. I'm that one. Perhaps he goes to Genesis 15 that speaks of Abraham believing God and, cre- and that being credited to him as righteousness. That speaks of a righteousness that comes by faith. Then he goes to Genesis 22. Um, I'm the one who was slain by his father. Talks about Abraham going up on the Mount Moriah to sacrifice his only, his one and only son. 
And Jesus is saying, I ascended Mount Moriah. Remember where Mount Moriah is. Mount Moriah is Jerusalem. I'm the one who went up that hill. I am the only begotten of the Father. Abraham looked forward to this day. And he saw it and he was glad. I'm the one who was slain by the Father on Mount Moriah. Or over to Genesis 50 where Joseph will not avenge his brothers who sold him into slavery. And instead of hating them, he forgives and he cares for them. Perhaps he takes them to the fact that he's the Passover lamb for the redemption from slavery. You remember coming out of, out of Egypt that you will take a lamb and you will kill it and you will put its blood on its doorpost and on its lentil and everybody who has that blood will be saved and those who don't will not be saved. And I am that Passover lamb. I am the one who delivers you out of the bondage and delivers you into the promised land. Yeah, that's me. I'm the serpent who's been lifted up in the wilderness who everybody who looks upon will be saved. You remember in the book of Numbers, they, the people sinned and there was a, a plague of serpents and biting people and people were dying and Moses was told, make a copper or a bronze serpent, put it on a pole and lift it up. Everybody who looks on the, that, that serpent will be saved. That doesn't make sense. You mean all I got to do, if you believe it, you will be saved. And sure enough, that's what happened. This is what he told Nicodemus. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Um, and when I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto to myself. I am, that, I am that serpent pole. I am that, that signal, that pole that Moses lifted up in the wilderness. That points to me. I'm the temple. I'm the high priest. I'm your mediator. I'm the atoning sacrifice. Maybe Deuteronomy 18. I'm the prophet that Moses spoke about. Goes forward to the book of Ruth. And we, we see this kinsman redeemer where points to me. I'm the relative, your near kinsman, your blood relative who redeems you from your slavery. Yeah, that's me. David, representing God, people slays Goliath. And he delivers. I'm the descendant of David who represents them and delivers them from death. Perhaps he goes through the psalm. Psalm 22 and Psalm 69, among others, point to me. I'm the one who gave my back to the smiters. I'm the one who thirsted. I'm the one who cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm the good shepherd of Psalm 23. I'm the one who makes David lie down in green pastures. I'm the one who walks with him in the valley of the shadow of death and prepares the table in the midst of his enemy. I am the one who is the faithful in the fire deliver. Malachi talks about there were I'm sorry, I'm the one in Daniel who the, the, kid, the, the, the children of Israel got put into the fire and there was a fourth person in there. Jesus says, yeah, that was me. Zechariah spoke of Israel weeping over the ones they pierced. Yeah, me. Isaiah speaks throughout of a suffering servant. There's going to come a suffering servant. That's me. Behold unto us, a child is born, a son is given. Me. He will be called the mighty God, me. I'm the one, Isaiah writes about one, the suffering servant who will bear their iniquities, bearing their griefs and sorrows, me. Malachi speaks of a servant who will come into the temple and he will purify his people. Yep, you guessed it. Me. Taking you on a brief journey through the Old Testament. From Genesis to Malachi. We could go into much greater detail. And I know some of you would love that. But some of you also want lunch. <laughs> Folks, my admonition to you is read the Bible with Jesus as the center. You will do well. 
you will do well. And then, there's this revelation. They say, hey, traveler friend, you haven't even asked his name yet. Hey, traveler friend, why don't you stay with us? It's getting late. Okay. And then the breaking of the bread, which certainly pictures Jesus feeding the 5,000 in the wilderness, certainly speaks of uh, the institution of the Lord's Supper. He was revealed. Oh my goodness, what a glorious day this was. Whatever despair, whatever hopelessness, whatever confusion, whatever, whatever they had. Oh, glorious day. They said, didn't our hearts burn when he was telling us all those cool stories? Didn't our hearts burn within us? How come we didn't know? We believed when we heard him, but now we see. And they are transformed. And what else can they do but go and tell the story? And they run back to Jerusalem. Seven miles at night. Run back to Jerusalem and tell the story. Say, hey, the thing those, the ladies told us, yeah, it's right. They're right. And they're all, the others are saying, yeah, we know. So I'll conclude then with, with this. God will often take us through times of difficulty. I, I want you to understand that when God takes us through times of difficulty, it's easy to say, well, is God good? We go back to what we know about God, and one of the very first things we know about is God is good. And it is, um, he will treat us with good. Even trying times are for our good and for his glory. And so um, that's one of the reasons why we have a church. If you're running through some of these difficult times, man, uh, call upon your brothers and sisters. We'll, we'd love to come alongside you and help you as best as we can with those trying times and be with you and walk with you in those things. But I can tell you this is conforming you to the image of his son and not the most more glorious thing than you can ever imagine. I also want to leave you with this. The scriptures about Jesus. The Bible, there are 66 books in the Bible. There are all sorts of stories. It is not a, it is not a, it's not 66 separate stories. It's not a whole bunch of unrelated Aesop's moral stories. It is a single book with a single story, and Jesus is the center of that single story. Read it as a single story. It'll make a whole lot more sense to you. When you come to difficult passages, don't try to just understand the difficult passage. Try to understand how does this difficult passage fit into the big theme of the entire Bible. Jesus, the scriptures about Jesus. The Bible is a single story. Jesus is the main theme. theme. And I'll tell you this, if you want to know anything about Jesus, <clears throat> read your Bible. It took me, what, 40 minutes to get to read your Bible. But I'm a preacher. You're lucky it only took me 40, whatever long, however long. I don't even know how long it took me, a while. So anyways, there we are. And uh, I pray that God would uh, impart these truths upon our hearts. Let's pray. Father.